Welcome back to the Gary Nolan Show. It's Jennifer Bukowski sitting in, and we have our presiding circuit court judge, Brooke Jacobs, here with us. Welcome. Thanks, Jen. I didn't know I was coming after Dr. Aaron Hedlund. I thought I was here to talk about the economy. Oh, no. <laughs> well, he wanted to talk law, so I should have just flipped the topics. But before we get into it, we have an important update. Brian Houseworth joins us to give us that update. Brian. All right, uh, Jen and uh, Your Honor, thank you so much. I'll, I'll keep this brief because I know people are interested in, obviously, what the judge uh, has to say about court, but certainly have some good news here. I know a lot of people in our Columbia audience on 93.9 The Eagle have been following all morning, and I have been uh, on top of the story. This actually started about 2 o'clock this morning. A man was barricaded inside a home, an apartment on North Stadium, uh, had been barricaded for hours and I have talked to Jeremiah Hunter via text, the Columbia Police uh, Department Assistant Chief, and that suspect has been taken into custody. The suspect has been taken into custody. Uh, no other details available right now. No reports of injuries, which is good news. They had a negotiation team there. It's called their crisis negotiation team. They practice, they train for that, if you will. They had the SWAT team there, if necessary, and a dog team, but the good news is that the uh, suspect has been taken into custody. Uh, Counselor and no apparent injuries in that uh, situation. Why was he barricaded in, like, I was in my house last night and there was no issues like why were they trying to get him out of his house do you know just that there was a uh, they're being very vague right now we'll get more information later but there was something um basically it was disturbing is my understanding something something came up and i'm not sure if people called in if he had made comments or people inside the house had made comments that again is a little sketchy right now but enough that they were very concerned and then he wouldn't come out they tried to tried to get him to come out earlier they had to evaluate evacuate a lot of people in that apartment complex, move them out. And then also there's so much traffic that drives through that area, not just on Ash, but on Stadium. And they were very careful to let people know to avoid that area. So it did impact a lot wow, of people. Wow, that sounds like they were concerned about explosive, well, explosive devices. It, not, they're not, again, we'll get a little more of that later, but the good news is no one, no one has been injured, at least nothing serious. Well, thank you for that update. And getting back to our judge here, Judge Brooke Jacobs who you may recognize from that uh, big case. You were, it, was, it got national attention. You see my friend Brooke in the news, uh, photos of him on the bench. It's uh, uh, the Elling... Elledge. Elledge. Mm -hmm. I almost said Ellinger. That's my friend Mark <laughs> Ellinger. The Elledge case. Uh, but you just gave a state of the courts, your annual address to the Boone County Bar meeting. I attended in part. I was guest toasting here, so I ran in late. But it, interesting remarks. Uh, yeah. You want to give us a couple highlights? Sure. It's uh, it's an annual address that the presiding judge gives to the members of the bar of Boone and Callaway counties. Uh, just kind of updating the lawyers on how things are going in the circuit. It's a lot of uh, kind of a data-heavy presentation about a uh, number of case filings, whether they're up or down, and um, what judges are going to be doing what kind of cases, that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, 573-874-9390. If you have a question, uh, you can text or call us at that number for our presiding judge. He's here taking the calls. You don't always get to just talk to him, as Brian Houseworth points out. Usually you're up there in the bench and the robe, and uh, you can't interrupt him. But now you can call him up and ask him what 
you would like to about the workings of our court. And Brian, you had a question for him. I do, um, Jen, and thank you for letting me sit in just for a moment. I'm going to just ask this question and, and listen, and then I'm going to have to run back because I've got this in another story. But um, a point I would make for the listeners and, a, and then a question for the judge. Um, the point I'd make very quickly for the listeners um, is that you get a chance when you go to court, and I, of course, do it as, a, as part of my job, but it is very interesting. But you really see what happens behind the scenes and kind of in a courtroom. It's all public. It's it's accessible to the public. Some of it's horrific. Some of it's very detailed. Some of it can be mundane, but it's all very important. And you have that opportunity to, to do it. So I'd encourage people to do it. The other thing, Your Honor, that I think is very important, and if there's other reporters listening, what covering courts it's so important to listen to what the prosecutor and the defense attorney say and sometimes sometimes as we saw in the Elledge case and I know you can't comment those two attorneys were actually making accusations at each other um, which I, I obviously reported but the courts also in the trials give me the opportunity as a reporter to listen to what you say or Judge Harris or Judge Crane and sometimes, sometimes you guys are able to give explanations that otherwise you could not about why a certain decision was been made I always try to include what you guys say on that and also summarize it in a fair way but an accurate way because really it's your only chance to explain a certain decision that can be controversial. Your thoughts on that? I, th I think that's important. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's, it's a hallmark of our court system in America that courts are open to the public. No one's getting convicted of something or sent to prison or um, anything like that without the public being able to be there and see what's going on, um, unlike, you know, what happens in Russia and China, places like that. So, um, but it's also the judge's only opportunity to really explain why he or she is making the decision that they are. Um, it, oftentimes, I'll read a, a story about a case that was in my courtroom, and, and it's it's just flat wrong. It's And... Um, but there's nothing I can do about it. I can't call a press conference. I can't, uh, you know, write a letter to the editor explaining why I did what I did. The only chance a judge really has to do that is is in open court. And that way, each party, the lawyers on each side, can comment on or dispute whatever the judge's findings are. But um, and, and sometimes a judge will issue a written opinion. Um, we always have... Um, you know, a, a conviction or a judgment, those are always court documents that mm. can be reviewed. But sometimes that's only going to say the result. It doesn't explain necessarily why the judge reached that result. So it's important if you want to know why something happened, be there in open court. I'd encourage any, any member of the media, if you're going to be reporting on a case, be there to observe it so you, you know why what happened happened. That's exactly right. And I would encourage that. And the importance of accuracy it gets back to that. And the only other point I make, Your Honor, and you know this, if, hopefully it never happens, but if I happen to report something inaccurate or whatever, I would want you to call me because I would get it corrected. But I, I, I appreciate well, that. I'm very, very, and I, uh, maybe ethically you couldn't do it. But if, if there's a way, if there's a way somehow I need to know, but I don't think that's going to happen. But if it were, I would correct it. I would correct it. Well, I appreciate it. I'll just have to see then private. Uh, yeah. um, if you uh, <laughs> say something inaccurate, Brian. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, there are rules yeah, against that. Ethically, I'm not allowed so to. You can't. No, that's you can't. Right. That's very interesting. Well, I'm always careful. I appreciate your service, sir. Thanks, Brian. But I, I do want to invite anyone yeah. listening if just just come down to the courthouse sometime if you're downtown uh, come by and see what's going on uh, in, you're absolutely allowed to come sit in on court uh, everything is public except for 
involuntary mental health commitments and juvenile cases and paternity cases. But otherwise, everything is open. Your garden variety, your criminal, uh, civil cases, disillusions of marriage, that's all public. Oh, yes, we found out with the Grydens thing. I bet uh, you weren't sad that you weren't presiding over that one because that one was getting a lot of attention. You're smiling. You can't say anything, I guess. Well, we we all have our, every judge has high-profile cases. Every judge has cases that are maybe a little bit stickier than others. Well, one thing you said during your speech, which I totally agree with and I have been doing, is to encourage our fellow citizens to participate as jurors when they get called. You know, I just get friends calling me how do i get out of this and i you know i'm kind of i i just say it's your civic duty it's your duty as a citizen to go and serve if you get called why are you trying to get out of it yeah i I like to tell jurors when they're there um you know i i acknowledge we all have other things we could be doing if we weren't here for a jury trial but imagine if you've got a, a controversy and you've got a case in court do you want your fellow jur- the jurors that are going to be presiding over your case to just be people with nothing better to do? Um, you know, we need accountants, we need plumbers, we need farmers, um, we housewives, need, in a, home, homemakers, uh, farmers, everybody, retired folks. But um, if we are left to have juries comprised of only people who have have literally nothing better to do, and I don't know that those people really exist, but um, we need people that have things going on in their lives they, they give perspective and that's important for the parties to have in a jury trial this is jennifer bukowski filling in for gary nolan we're talking to our presiding circuit court judge brooke jacobs uh he presides over boone and callaway counties i know we have springfield listening in but there are some other issues uh, to bring up with you that are more broadly applicable such as expungement so this is part of this amendment three the marijuana thing uh they would do like this broad expungement and i guess the court the courthouse i talked to missy martlett they would they're kind of bracing themselves if this passes like how will they go about processing um these blanket expungements but we do have expungements in place now where people can petition. Are you seeing those, or how are those handled currently? We have a lot. They, they all go to Judge Devine um, in circuit court. He handles all of them so that we have kind of a standardized uh, process for that. Um, you can have a lawyer. You can uh, file for expungement yourself. It's a form, and um, notice has to be given to the highway patrol, to the, the sheriff's office, uh, in the county where the, the the crime happened, but um, but no, it's it's it, it ought to be a fairly streamlined, relatively easy process. You can have up to two misdemeanors expunged and up to one felon or one felony expunged. There are limitations, so you know, class A felonies, certain uh, violent crimes, certain just high level crimes, you can't get expunged. Yet there has to be a period of time where you haven't had any new convictions. But it's a way for people to sort of start over fresh. You know, 150 years ago, if you were convicted of shoplifting in, you know, Massachusetts, you could move off to Wyoming after you, uh, you know, served your time or whatever, and no one would be the wiser. But now, with uh, particularly with the Internet, uh, it's just really hard to escape any kind of record. And so if you've got – we, we, I guess the legislature, they wanted uh, – folks to have the ability to get a fresh start and this uh we our job as judges we don't you know we'll take what we get if the law passes we follow the law that's what we do as judges 
and that's exactly what it should be you know that you follow the law you don't say what the law should be but i'll say what the law should be on this expungement in part i was all for expungements and i was on a committee to help with expungements but i have two main objections to what's happening now i think it's too soon and that they're not real uh, and i'll explain like i think it should be a little bit longer of a time period before you're eligible not just three years before you can get something wiped off and I think it should be actually an expungement that counts for, like, the restoration of gun rights where the records are destroyed and it's as if it didn't happen. That's what we used to have in the limited cases. Like, we we could get a DWI expunged after 10 years. You could get a minor in possession of alcohol expunged after a certain number of years after turning 21. But those would have counted to restore gun rights while minor in possession. You wouldn't have lost them to begin with. But... uh because it would have been a real expungement if that had been triggered, if the firearms thing had been triggered. But now they're just closing the records like it's an SIS. An SIS, that's the thing you get that you would typically get asked for for someone that doesn't have a record so that they have a closed record at the end of probation. Now there's like little to no difference because you would be on probation two years and then it's a closed record with an SIS. But now if you plead guilty and get a conviction, you can get it expunged after three. And they want to do this clean state slate initiative uh, next legislative session that would like automatically make those closed. I, as an attorney, I'm looking up jurors' criminal histories. I'm looking up um, witnesses' criminal histories, co-defendants' criminal histories, and the more information that's hidden from me, also as an employer, the less informed my decisions are going to be. And so that bothers me. I think that we should have forgiveness. We should have expungements, but they should be real expungements, and they should be after a, a longer period of meaningful time well jen i have no comment on that but i can say if 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 amendment three passes the circuit clerk's office uh, headed by our elected clerk uh, christy blakemore in boone county and megan morse in callaway county uh, they'll be working with the judges and uh, we'll do what we're supposed to do um, i think it's the one of the big differences from our perspective is with amendment three um, the petitioner doesn't have to affirmatively do anything um, the, yeah. the clerk's office is going to have to go in there and, ex- and expunge. And that's records. how it would be with Clean Slate that they're going to propose. Brian's giving me the signal. we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm going to ask him about uh, phones at the courthouse. So get ready for that. Brooke Jacobs, uh, Judge Brooke Jacobs joins me. Jennifer Bukowski filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. And we're back on the Gary Nolan Show on this Froster Buns Friday. It's Jennifer Bukowski filling in. And I'm talking to my friend and presiding circuit court judge, Brooke Jacobs. We've been talking about the state of the courthouse, and I will say, and I know you, I know that I'm going to zing you on this because I've been kind of complaining about it for a while, but for, you know, the first 10 or more years that I practiced, everyone could bring their phones into the courthouse, which is important because a lot of people get rides up there. You need to find your client. Are you here yet? But now, unless you're a lawyer, you can't bring a phone into the courthouse. Why was that rule changed, and uh, is that rule ever going to be revisited so that you only do that if it's like a high-profile trial. You can't bring a phone into the, the trial, but maybe you could still have it at the courthouse. Because people sit there in the dock as they're bored. Like, they're going to be mad they're sitting there waiting that long without a phone. I'd, I'd be getting the shakes. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, nobody reads newspapers anymore. So Where would you even get those. them, hardly? But no, Jen, yeah, you're welcome to come to a court on bank meeting and bring that up. Uh, we could we could always revisit any policy. When's this the was, next meeting? Uh, it's either next week or the week after. All right. But this was uh, before my time, but the, the judges put a lot of thought into it and uh, decided that uh, 
aside from attorneys, no one should be able to have a cell phone in the courthouse. I think the idea, for one thing, they were distractions in court, phones going off, that sort of thing. But another factor was that, you know, now every cell phone you can record and take pictures. And there were instances of witness intimidation and sort of harassment um, by, by uh, recording. And so to stave that off, that was, that was one of the main reasons. Huh, it's interesting. Um, but you know, with everything, there's a trade-off. There are pluses and minuses, pros and cons. And, but I do know that my predecessors weighed, weighed all of that, and, and this was the decision that was made. But it's hard. Sometimes the dockets are taking longer. Some hearing goes on, and people can't like text their employer, I'm going to be later. You know, my court is taking longer, or like let their ride know, or their child care provider or whatever the case might be it's yeah, just inconvenient it, it, it's tough i've heard of people stashing their phone in a bush or something outside the courthouse because if, if they came without a car or something to put it put it in if if you have your phone i mean if you're, you left your phone in your car i'm sure the judge would let you run out there and make what arrangements you needed to make and then come back in it's yeah it's hard because you don't know if you're about to be called and you don't want to miss that so it's just like you're there on pins and needles but um, the other things going on, there's a new courthouse opening in Callaway County. That's exciting. We're very excited about that. Uh, there'll be four uh, courtrooms there capable of, of handling business. Right now, we really have one and a half courtrooms in Callaway. Only one courtroom uh, presently can, can we do a jury trial in. We'll have two at the new courthouse, and that'll really make cases uh, flow faster. And we have a lot of judges on the ballot, but no one in a contested election here locally in your circuit, everyone, it was all decided with the primaries, I guess. Incumbency protection, I guess. As an, in, as an incumbent, that's, uh, I have no, no problem with that. <laughs> well, you're doing a good job. That's why you're not getting some opposition. Is there anything else that you want people to know about um, the courts or jury service or anything like that? Where can they find information about the courthouses and the rules and when trials are going to happen and things like that? Well, trials, you can always check CaseNet. And uh, if, if you're following a particular case, you can punch a party's name in there or uh, the case number if you know that. And everything that's happening on the case is on CaseNet. Uh, oh, and never, there's it, an announcement on that. Like, pretty soon, next year, people are going to be able to look at the court documents that are filed, not just lawyers, but you'll be able to click and read those things, right? That's right. Right now on CaseNet, uh, unless you are a, a lawyer on the case or the judge, you, you can't read the documents, a charging document, uh, filings, motions. But in J uh, July of uh, next year, 23, that will all those documents will actually be available on CaseNet. R right now, they're all so available. So Brian Houseworth won't have to run down to the courthouse to get the charging docs. He'll be able to pull them right off. That's right. All, all, most documents, unless it's the judge is given permission for it to be under seal or something, they are public, and you can get those at the courthouse. Um, the lawyers, of course, just view, view it on CaseNet with e-filing. But anyway, that's that'll be the, the law. The public will have the same access that lawyers have going forward. It'll be prospective, so you'll still have to run down to the courthouse if you want to look up records from your, you know, babysitter or whatever that happened in the past uh, to get those pulled. Thank, thank you so much for joining us, Brooke. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Next up. Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft has a whole host of topics to talk about. He had a couple of wins yesterday and the Cole County Circuit Court, um, Don and Jeff. And uh, he joins us next on The Gary Nolan Show. This is Jennifer Bukowski 
filling in. We're taking all your calls. Don't go away. This is the Gary Nolan Show. Welcome back to the Gary Nolan Show. This is Jennifer Bukowski filling in. We're expected to be joined by Jay Ashcroft um, soon here, our Secretary uh, of State. Uh, He got some wins in court yesterday. Uh, The Cole County Circuit Court judge, Judge Beatham, he's the presiding judge down there. We're just talking to presiding Judge uh, Brooke Jacobs. He threw out this lawsuit by the League of Women Voters and the NAACP, which challenged our new laws on voter ID, um, requiring that voters show a government-issued photo ID at the ballot box in November. Previously, voters could use alternative options such as school IDs and utility bills to vote. Uh, Those who don't have a photo ID will have to vote with a provisional ballot. When Missourians pick a new U.S. senator and decide whether to legalize recreational marijuana in a couple of weeks, Beatum wrote in his order that the lawsuit failed to show that the law's photo ID requirement would be unconstitutionally burdensome for every voter in Missouri. He wrote that the plaintiffs, which included the Missouri NAACP and the League of Women Voters, lack standing. And so... Denise Lieberman, the director and general counsel of the Missouri Voter Protection Coalition, one of the groups that filed the suit, said in a phone interview with the Kansas City Star that the judge's ruling was procedural and it was not the end of it. It left the door open for them to amend their lawsuit within 30 days. And she says at the end of the day, this case will be decided by the Missouri Supreme Court. This ruling is simply a procedural pit stop on the road to the Missouri Supreme Court. Well, tick tock, my goodness, it's October 14th, the elections are uh, coming close. I can't imagine getting a decision, like having a hearing, getting a decision at the circuit court level, and then going up to the Missouri Supreme Court, briefing it, and getting an argument and a decision all by November 8th. I mean, how many days away are we here? Seven, 21, 20-some odd days, but I will say that from what I've seen with the Missouri Supreme Court, it is quite common for them to go ahead and find that our voter ID laws are unconstitutional on dubious grounds, in my opinion. Uh, So we'll have to stay tuned and see that. But it seems ridiculous to me that you have to show your ID for all kinds of stuff. To go into the federal courthouse in Jefferson City, you must have a government-issued ID. To get on an airplane... You need to show your ID to do almost to buy Sudafed at the grocery store. You need to show your ID. Why not show an ID to vote? Like, why would that be so burdensome? And if we care about election integrity, this would hopefully, you know, have create more confidence in the election system um, for the citizens to have in that system. So I think it's a good idea to require voter ID. Other countries all require IDs to vote. Uh, I mean, I don't know if they all do, but most do, or many, you know, that's the norm. So we have a caller with a legal question, and it is Froster Runs Friday, so you get to call in about whatever is on your mind at 573-9390. Oh, wait, <laughs> I just missed that. 573-874-9390. But uh, Rick, welcome to The Gary Nolan Show. Good morning. You indicated, and the judge indicated, that 
phones were not permitted. Is that in the courthouse or the courtrooms? If you walk into a phone, would they turn you away and tell you to get rid of it and come back? That's one question and a follow-up. You you can't bring them in at all. And some courthouses, like Callaway, there's some lockbox where you can drop them off there while you're in the courthouse. But Boone County doesn't have that capability. So if you don't have a car to like go take your phone back to and leave it in, yeah, you're kind of stuck if you got dropped okay. off there or whatever. It's uh, yeah. Okay, and in layman's term, what does legal standing mean? That means like you can't sue to say Jennifer's being mean to Brian because like you're not me, you're not Brian. It's not really your business or your place to bring that lawsuit. Ah. So standing means that you have a legitimate ground. But for which to bring the suit and it's it, they, we lawyers we make it very complex as to who can sue under what circumstances and there are exceptions um also is there like a, a legitimate case in controversy right now or is this just you're asking for like kind of a hypothetical an answer to a hypothetical question there has to be a case in controversy you can't be like well what if jennifer drives her car and hits me but this hasn't even happened yet you, there's no standing for that suit either because you don't have a, a ripe, justiciable case in controversy. And, and who decides that, the judge? Or? Yeah. So, well, okay. the lawyers and, and, bring that and, up that they don't have standing, and then the judge has to decide whether or not they do. If the League of Women Voters doesn't have standing, who would in regards to voting? I mean, they're pretty reliably involved every year so i was curious to know on what basis they would not have standing often they bring actual voters who would be able to say i don't have an id and this law would prohibit my ability to vote but i'm sure they don't have a voter like that on their lawsuit like they normally do because uh. it's kind of hard to find people who would say i've got it together well enough to participate as the named plaintiff in this lawsuit, but I can't get it together to have a government-issued ID when I show up to the poll. So legal standing doesn't apply per se to organizations. It's more individuals. Is that what you're indicating? Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you for the clarification. Oh, no problem. Uh, this is Jennifer Bogoski filling in for Gary Nolan. And uh, we're hoping to talk to Jay Ashcroft uh, about a whole host of topics that he has for us. And he is with us. Welcome, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft to the Gary Nolan Show. I'm so sorry. I had a constituent that had questions about elections, and I, I was answering them, and I forgot all about this. I'm very sorry. Oh, no, you're perfectly fine. I just filled everyone in on the win that you had in the Cole County Circuit Court yesterday. Congrats on that. And we had a question about the standing and why the League of Women Voters might not have standing, but it uh, you got a couple of wins, is that right? Yeah, we did. We uh, we won that case because the, the plaintiffs couldn't find a single person that was injured by the law. In other words, all the people they pointed to would be able to vote normally under the law. And then, of course, we had an individual that wanted to file an initiative petition to legalize abortion, and we said, no, those initiative petitions were due back in May, um, the cycle starts back up in November. That's what the Constitution directs. And he thought he was above the law, and the court said, no, you have to follow the Constitution just like everybody else. Well, congratulations on those wins. Uh, the attorney on the voter ID case said that this is ultimately going to be decided by the Missouri Supreme Court, but I don't know that they can, and they can amend their lawsuits. So I guess they're going to try to come up with someone that 
will be able to say with a serious face that they've got their act together well enough to participate as a named plaintiff in a lawsuit, but it would be overly burdensome for them to show their ID to vote. <laughs> well, and the important thing is people are already voting. Uh, we already have people requesting absentee ballots. Uh, we have people that are that, that have their ballots that are sending them back in their absentee ballots. Uh, the court should not be changing the rules in the middle of an election. And I think that even if there is an amendment to uh, their filing, even if they appeal it, it means that any court proceeding should happen after the election so everybody plays by the same rules. And that's the way it ought to be with an election. Well, that could be tricky, though, because, like, we're looking for the results and people have already cast their ballots, so you can't know which were which. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for litigating and deciding these things before you vote. But you are right. Exactly. People are voting. Yeah. So this will if there's I'm sure there will be further litigation. It will be after the election. And if there are any decisions that would change the law, which I don't think there will be, those will be after this election for other elections looking forward. We cannot be changing the rules in the middle of an election. Interesting. Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on those lawsuits. I agree. We got to get this stuff figured out and then play by the rules and win the elections at the end of the day. Uh, uh, your press secretary suggested a whole bunch of topics for us today. I'm sure he filled you in on those, but education reform in Missouri, maybe like Arizona, parents should have the right to choose and unleash the potential of every child in our state. What's going on in Arizona, and uh, what should Missouri do to emulate them, if anything? In Arizona, what they did was they decided that every child in the state would get essentially the state funding that's going to that child's education, and they put it into like a health savings account that people might use for medical procedures or for medical bills, and they said, this is your education savings account, and we're not going to send it to... The, the local public school, you're going to decide where it gets sent. If you want to continue to go to your local public school, it'll just go to them. If you want to be homeschooled and want to use that money for textbooks or for tutoring, you can do that. If you want to go to a private school, you can use that toward the tuition. I believe every parent in this state should have the same opportunity to send their kid to whatever school they want that I have as a secretary of state. We can do it. We should do it. It's the right thing to do. I completely agree. I'm excited about that idea. We have to take a quick break, but if you could stick around, we have more to get to next. I um, will. Thanks. Well, great. On the Gary Nolan Show, it's Jennifer Bukowski filling in and joined by Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. Taking all your calls. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And we're back on the Gary Nolan Show. It's Jennifer Bukowski filling in for Gary, joined by Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. We're talking school choice before the break. And I have to plug the Show Me Institute has this moschoolrankings.org website where they've taken information that's publicly available, but you have to really dig into it on the Dusty website and ranked all of the public schools in our state, one to whatever, you know, for both elementary and high school. And uh, your local schools that are supposed to be very good might not be uh, performing as well as you think. I encourage everyone to check that out. Our next thing we're going to do follows the money and Jay, you know, like some school districts like Clayton, they get 25 bucks a student from the state. And then there's a school district called New York School District, 
where they get $54,000 per student from the state because it's a, a school district with only 15 kids. And so wow. they get to uh, they get to get as much money as if they have 100 kids. And so they get 7000 per student. So they have a budget of $700,000 for those 15 students, whereas in other places where local tax dollars do go into the school system more they get like $25 total per student from the state. So it's interesting because you see people on the left, we need to fund education. Well, a lot of places where the people on the left live, the more money they dump in, they're not getting any of that money. Isn't that interesting? It is, and it's, it's all part of the, uh, the school formula, the funding formula uh, that the state has. And, um, you know, I, as long as we look at children as a commodity, which is a terrible thing to do because every child is different. But we're looking at children like they're widgets on an assembly line, and we're just saying, well, this child needs this much, therefore this child needs this much, and this child needs this, therefore this child needs this. We need to break away from that assembly line uh, approach to education and say, how do we provision education as that child needs it? So regardless of where they are, IQ, wherever, they, regardless of where they are, socioeconomic, we are saying, how do we educate that child and make sure that they can be the best that they can be, that every child in this state can get a challenging education? I have four kids. Their personalities are all extremely different. What works for one doesn't work for another, and we need to start provisioning education in a way that works. That is so true. You know, and like affluent people do have that ability to choose between schools, but otherwise, People, you know, spend what they can to live in the good school district, and that is their only option. Whereas if this Arizona plan, they could be like, well, how do we attract students? Maybe this school is going to be the big athletic school. And then this school is going to be the one known for rigorous academics that can help you get into college. And parents can be like, here's my kid. Here's what I have hope for them. This is where I'm going to devote my allocation of that state money. I think that's much more fair and it could lead to better schools better teachers and a better environment for the students right i think it will turn it will give us smaller schools that are more focused so that they can be more focused on what the select students that go to that school need we will see an increased need for teachers and i think the best way to improve teacher pay is school choice because when parents can make the choice they will put their kids in schools that they are happy about. And when they're happy about their kids' school, they will vote to pay those teachers more money. And the school will be getting more money to pay yep. teachers more. And the ones that are doing terribly don't get to just keep collecting those checks while they sit at home and quote-unquote teach and remotely or whatever sure, else. Parents can make sure that their money actually gets to the classroom. Because if you look at a lot of our school districts, even when they're getting money, what percentage of that money is actually getting to the classroom, would we say, is really part of the provision of education, teaching kids to read, write, to do arithmetic, to be able to think analytically, to logically construct. That's what we need, because if we teach kids to be able to think and we have a good library system, they can learn whatever they need to, whatever new skills, whatever new hobbies, whatever new job training they need for the rest of their life. That's so funny you bring that up because that is another thing that our new project is going to do. It's going to show what proportion 
of that money makes it toward to educating the kids in the classroom versus administration and all the other stuff you know like how much of the resources that they're getting are they investing in education because as my friend buck Sexton likes to say like our, our public school system has become kind of a job program for adults and not really about the children in some cases like a lot of people work there that really care passionately about teaching children but when you follow the money it's not always going to teach the children well, and think about the federal funds, the federal money. It's 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 a it's a portion that matters, but it's not a great percentage of what we spend on education in Missouri. And then think of all the strings that are attached, all the extra money we have to spend to meet those federal requirements. I'd love to see uh, the Show Me Institute do an analysis of whether or not it actually costs us more money to meet the federal requirements than we get from the federal government for education. That's interesting. I should pass that suggestion along. We just had Aaron Headland in too, and uh, Susan Pendergrass well, we is. Do that. He's well. Susan Pendergrass are our uh, head of uh, education policy, and she's a national national expert. She's phenomenal at that uh, in that role. So we just had a special session with a tax cut. Uh, what do you think Missouri should be doing as we look ahead to grow our state with regard to taxes? Was this enough? Well, this is a minor tax cut. I mean, two sessions ago, we passed the largest tax increase in the history of the state when we had a $2 billion surplus. Now we passed, frankly, it's not the largest tax increase in the history of the state. It's double counting uh, a tax cut that was passed several years ago. And now we have a $15 billion surplus in our state. Um, we have to starve our government. The way to give people back control is for them to control the purse strings. And yes, I'm glad they passed a small tax cut, but they should have gone larger. And what they really should have done was they should have put a constitutional amendment for the people to vote on that would have mandated that there could be no more statewide tax increases without a vote of the people. And if we want to control government, the people need to be in charge of the purse. I would vote yes on that all day long. (laughs) The second aspect of that is not only should the people have to approve any tax increase, tax continuation, tax expansion, but the, the legislature, no tax dollars should be allowed to be spent under our Constitution unless they are specifically appropriated by the legislature. So the people will control the taxes and the people's people in the legislature will control how it's spent. We need accountability back in government. And tax credits need to be uh, allocated, too, in my opinion. But, Brian, uh, this has been a great conversation. Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, we're out of time, though. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gary Nolan Show. I was late. Oh, you're fine. Uh, Coming up next, I've got a whole host of interesting things to talk about. And uh, Missouri Times. Uh, publisher Scott Fawn will be in studio joining me in this next hour too so please don't go away and give us all your thoughts this and calls. This is the Gary Nolan Show.